Would you turn to Luke chapter 11? That's in the New Testament, Luke chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. You're welcome to borrow. It's also going to be on the screen here in just a moment. That's Luke chapter 11. While you're finding your place there, I want to tell you that I believe this church is just fantastic, Uh, even though it's filled with all of us. Uh, It is good to be God's people together. It is so good to pray with you, to cry with you, to celebrate with you, to worship with you, and just to journey and do this life with you. Uh, It's a good day to be God's people together. Today was our neighborhood clothes closet day. Uh, It's our third month, is that accurate? Or fourth? Fourth. It's our fourth month. Uh, We started in March, that's right. And once a month we gather at the Rock Community Center just up the road here, like we will all this week doing our VBS there. Uh, We'll have 60 to 100 some kids show up uh, to get uh, lunch, but to more importantly hear the good news that Jesus loves them and he's inviting them into his kingdom to follow uh, and love and find life. And that's what we're doing. We're just trying to be a faithful presence in this community, in this neighborhood for God's kingdom. And so I love that uh, we had such a great group today meeting with 24 or more people. Actually, we probably had closer to 30. Uh, I, I wasn't there the whole time, but it's so good to see you all being God's people together to meet with, to pray with, to play with those kids, and to meet some needs in Jesus' name. So I hope you're there in Luke chapter 11. Would you stand with me as we read together verses 1 through 13? We're going to look at Jesus' teaching on prayer, and we're going to look at a false narrative about prayer, and we're going to let Jesus transform that belief or narrative and hopefully answer a few questions about what does God do or what do we do and what is God up to when he doesn't do or give us what we want. So would you read or, excuse me, just listen as I read these words from Luke chapter 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend And you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door's already locked, and my children and I are in bed. Pause. If you have young children, you know you don't want people knocking on that dang door at the middle of the night when them things are asleep. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, Even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, 
If your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. We're going to come back around and explore this incredible teaching that Jesus gave on prayer in just a moment, but I want to remind you of a quote from pastor and author A.W. Tozer when he said that what you think about, or rather what comes to your mind when you think about God, is the most important thing about you. Think about that. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When you read that Tozer quote in his original book and in the original paragraph and you press him, he says if you would actually sit down with a person and really pick at and prod at and ask about their view of God, you will say, oh yes, I already knew that. And he says because you will have seen it in their behavior. So our big idea this summer in our series called Is God, in which we tackle misconceptions about who God is and how God is at work, our big idea this summer is simply this. Your beliefs or narratives is a word I used last week and encourage you to look at. Your beliefs about God determine how you live your everyday life. That's on the screen there. That's our big idea. Your beliefs about God Determine how you live your everyday life. I agree with Tozer. If you really push and prod and get to know someone, and that person believes that God said something as crazy as love your enemies as yourself, and you see them willfully going toward enemies or difference, as Amy Sinclair shared earlier, you see, oh yeah, they must be buying what Jesus was selling. Are you with me? It's made its way from their head, their ears, into their hearts, and into their actions. Conversely, if you have somebody believe a silly thing like we talked about last week, that God is an angry tyrant and he is hating and out to get people, it might compel you to do silly things like write that on a picket sign and show up at the place that Amy was on Sunday. Your beliefs about God determine how you live your everyday life. So each week we're going to ask three key questions about these narratives, these beliefs that we see in our culture. And even if we're honest with ourselves, hello, believe. Or at least have believed. So we want to identify these narratives and then we want to transform these narratives. And how we do so, I believe, is by putting it through the filter of these three questions. The first is simply, let's identify it. What's a false narrative about God out there? Let's call a spade a spade and say, eh, that's false. The second question is, okay, then what is a true narrative about God? What's the flip side of the coin? You with me? Then the third question, and this is crucial, How does Jesus reveal this narrative to be true? And I want you to hear me on this. You might have heard last week, is God an angry tyrant, that he must be appeased, and if you sin, he will punish you, and he sounds more like karma. That sounds really unpleasant, yes? Who would want to believe that? You're looking at him right here for most of my Christian life as a teenager. So we believe these false narratives a lot of times, 
So when we see them as uncomfortable or unpleasant, what you might want to do is just throw it on out. Whoosh, let me throw that up. Now I've come to see that God is an angry tyrant is bad news. So I'm going to throw it up and, and, and throw it away in lieu of something that is more palatable. You with me? This is what happens a lot of times. Sure, I'll kick out God as an angry tyrant, and I'll just fill it in with any willy-nilly, fluffy, unicorn version we want. Now, that's not that far from the truth, because John, by the way, says in 1 John 4 that God is love. So I could have just spent, saved y'all all 40 minutes last week and said, hey, this false narrative is wrong. The true narrative is God is love, and he is loving and gracious first, and his love and grace and mercy outlast his judgment. End of story, good. But y'all sat and listened to me for 40 minutes. No, we don't just willy-nilly throw one out and put one that we like better. No, the third question is crucial. How does Jesus reveal this narrative to be true? Because the New Testament insists that yes, God is love, but the truest revelation of God is Jesus Christ. And I'm not making it up. If you look at John, he says nobody's ever seen God, but Jesus made him known. And if you don't believe John, you can look at Paul in his first chapter of Colossians. And he says, he, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You wanted to know what the invisible God looks like? Man, you should have just checked out Jesus. And then Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 says, In the past he spoke this way and that, but these days he spoke definitively. He put a period on it. The shininess of God's shininess, the exact image and representation of God's glory is Jesus. And we still go back through looking through all the Bible and thinking that God is some tyrant. But we see that, no, no, these are just shadows of revelations until you get to the dawning of Jesus the Son who doesn't change who God is. He reveals who God always was. Now we can just see it. It's like we've been looking at this landscape that's dark and you can kind of make out there's a tree over here and you can kind of make out there's a river because you might hear it and you see it in places, you see it in glimpses, but then it's 3 a.m. and it's dark. But then at 6 a.m. the sun begins to break open and you begin to see more clearly, yes, until finally it's full dawn at 7 a.m. and here you see Jesus re-illuminating the landscape. It's always been there. But now it comes clearly into focus. So Jesus then is the filter, the dawning, the litmus test of every single narrative or belief you have about God. So if you are enslaved in one of these narratives we're looking at this summer, please be uncomfortable and please let Jesus wake you up out of it. The narrative we're going to look at tonight is not as scary as God being an angry tyrant, but it is still just as insidious, and it can work its way out into our lives, and we can trade a relationship with the God who looks like Jesus for the stuff that Jesus gives. Tonight, the narrative we're going to look at is, is God a cosmic vending machine? Is God a cosmic vending machine. So let's put this filter through those three key questions, and in just a moment, we're going to get back to Luke chapter 11. So let's look. This is on the slide. What is a false narrative about God? What is the false narrative that I'm getting at when I say, is God just a cosmic vending machine? Here's what I'm after. God will give us what we want, and the want is crucial. Hold on to that. If we say the right things and push the right religious buttons. You with me? Let me put it another way. God is the cosmic distributor 
of the blessings, the health, the wealth, the jobs, the stuff, the cars, the enormous house I want. Sure, he gives me stuff I need, but he is just the cosmic distributor of the stuff I want. If I would just put in the right religious quarter, punch the right buttons, A11, I looked up into the heavens and behold, those, plastic, those, those little metal coils began to turn. And I heard the voice of the angels as the pretzel M&Ms fell down and behold, I ate and feasted. That's Adam 4.12. Is God just a cosmic distributor? This is a false narrative because you hear it in our culture if you stay awake till 2 a.m. and turn it on channel 2 on your TV. And I mean, God bless them, these televangelists that tell you if you would just put in this religious quarter, except it's not a quarter, it's $100. You with me? This is your seed money. You got to pay your rent. You got to get your mortgage. You got to get back on track. If you would not pay your rent and mortgage and give me $100, I promise you that if you just wait and claim it, what will happen is God will take that seed and it will produce a harvest ten times and a hundred times and on and on it goes. And the problem with that narrative is it just doesn't work like that. Jesus is going to correct our narrative in Luke chapter 11 in just a moment. But what I mean by the religious buttons is it may not be money or televangelists. It may be you thinking that if I just write a nice check to a church or a charity, which by the way, we'll take your checks. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm not that kind of guy. I'm not on channel two at midnight. <laughs> we will take your checks though. <clears throat> Why? Because we want to send your checks out. We don't want to sew it in our pockets. We want to send it to Russia and El Paso and the Middle East. And we want to send it into our community and into families who need it. Why? Because we believe that God doesn't work on this causal. If you give this, then you'll get that because that sounds like a vending machine. And I think one of the beliefs, one of the outgrowths of this belief is what I call what you've heard, the name it and claim it syndrome. You've heard of name it and claim it. Raise your hand if you've heard of this kind of theology. The name it and claim it theology simply goes like this and it's rooted out of this false narrative and it sounds like this. If you speak a word of blessing, right, you name it, you say it, and then God will materialize it. If you believe enough, if you say it just right, and what happens is you get this issue of punching the right buttons and putting in the right quarters and thinking that God simply exists to meet your needs because a lot of the problems with the name it and claim it syndrome is your name and stuff like vehicles and houses and things that are beyond the realm of need and on the way into want. And the real difficulty when we look at Jesus' teachings on how we might ask and what we read earlier and what we're going to look at in a moment is that God is more concerned about giving you what you need, although sometimes God does give you what you want. But the teaching that runs counter the false narrative is that God will sometimes give you what you want, but he will always give you what you need. And he never runs out of what you need. But Jesus addressed this name it and claim it syndrome in the ancient way when we look at Matthew 6. 
verses 7 to 8. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. But the ancient version of name it and claim it would be these pagans, as they were called, basically non-Jewish people who would worship all sorts of gods. And Jesus says they babble. It's here on the screen in Matthew chapter 6. He says that don't be like these guys who go up and pray and they just start running their mouths. They just start saying this. And what he's doing, if you look down at verse 7, is he says they're just calling out every God in the book to see if anybody's listening. They're pumping the machine full of quarters. They're punching their numbers. And they're just hoping that any single person would listen. And he says they think they're going to be heard because of their many words. And what he's saying also is they're trying to say these magic incantations that Jesus and all of his friends would have heard on the street every single day. How many of you grew up in a church? And I want to be really careful here. I want to be real careful here. I want you to hear me, please. Just repeat this prayer after me. And then you're good. I believe that God can work in those moments. I believe that the Holy Spirit saves people, regenerates, fills people right there and then. And they set off down a road of following Jesus for the rest of their life. I want you to hear that right now. But I also know so, 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 so many people who have said a lot of magic words that have had no bearing on their life whatsoever. And Jesus says, look, what I'm not interested in is magic words and many words. What I am interested in is, are you cultivating a relationship of reliance on the Father? And he says this in verse eight, don't be like them for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You don't have to go twist his arm and pump the quarters. Now we're getting at our true narrative. You ready? You don't have to twist his arm and know this, that even though God knows what you want, hear this. Our Father delights in you asking. We did a series in James a few months back, and James says you don't have because you don't ask. Now understand this. Nobody asked for their heart to keep beating at this moment, right? Has anybody prayed that? Please beat again. Please beat again. Please beat again. Please beat again. Unless you're Pastor Bud in need of a couple lungs, he might be praying, please let me breathe again. Please let me breathe again. And we should be praying for Pastor Bud. God gives us things we don't ask for, but God delights in giving us things we do ask for because the more you ask, the more you receive, and then the more you receive, the more hopefully you start to recognize that God is behind it. So this is why Jesus tells us, disciples, pray this, God, give us today our daily bread. Jesus is saying this to a bunch of day laborers who thought that they got their daily bread because they got their daily wage and they went to the baker and they got their supplies and they went home and baked it and because they didn't have 7-Eleven, they were really relying on that coin. But he says, no, 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 it's not about this transaction. Just ask me for what you need. I know you need bread. I know you need life. I know you need breath. I know you need a community. I know you need vehicles and, and ways to get around. I know you need these things, but would you ask me? Because when you get your daily bread, you might begin to see that it wasn't just the money that got it. It was what's behind the money, and it's the fact that I've given you the ability to work, and I've given you the ability to spend and and and." save and to work and to walk and to bless and you can ask and ask and someday you'll move from gimme 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 to thank you thank you thank you 
don't be like this and twisting their arm. Jesus says, look, know that God loves to give you what you need, even though he knows it. Every single morning, my two daughters come to my side of the bed and say, Daddy, we want breakfast. As if I'm going to say, oh, yeah, that's right. We usually eat most days. Yet they still ask, and I still drag my tired self up out of bed, and we do it. We're getting closer to our true narrative, and this is question number two, excuse me, number two. (laughs) Our true narrative is this. God knows and gives us what we need. God cares more about who we are becoming through our spiritual formation than giving us everything we want through a spiritual transaction. Here's what I'm getting at. It's the move from gimme, gimme, gimme to thank you, thank you, thank you. Here's what I'm getting at. Sometimes we struggle to know the difference between what we want and what we need. John, I think, prayed earlier, thank you, God, for giving me what I need. Thank you for saying no when I needed to say no because sometimes what we need is a no. I think of Willy Wonka and I think of Miss Veruca Salt. Veruca Salt was the one who was running around and looking like this. If you look back at the beginning of that movie, what happened is she has a father who gave her everything she wanted. We had a father who catered to her every whim. And so you know how to get to the chocolate factory. You got to find the what? The golden ticket. Well, dude, let's hedge our bets. So what did daddy do? He gave her everything she wanted, and that was 9,000 chocolate bars. And then because her daddy had a factory, he put every single employee to the table to be opening up these bars until finally she finds the golden ticket. But here's the funny part. If you go back and watch that scene like I did recently, and it kind of struck me and I held on to it for this message, is because she's running around while these people are opening bar after bar after bar, and she's screeching, and she says, Daddy, you never give me what you want, what I want. She says, Daddy, you never give me anything I want. God doesn't want to raise a bunch of Veruca salts. Because what happens is when we get everything we want, it makes us greedy for more, it makes us stingy with what we have, and it makes us ungrateful. And we don't have to ask if we get it. We might be tempted then to read Jesus' words as we read earlier when he said, ask, seek, and knock. We might be tempted to also be a Veruca Salt that says, well, this must be a blank check to put in anything I want whether it's 9,000 chocolate bars or to be rid of this person who annoys me or to get out of this place in which I don't want to be. But what if God was more concerned with your formation than giving you the transaction of what you asked for? What if you're still in that situation with that difficult person because God just doesn't download patience, he gives you opportunities to be patient? What if God has you in this season and situation in which you are stuck because God is waiting for you to continue to spin your wheels enough to where you say, okay, maybe I need to go a different direction. If God gave you what you want, would it form you into the person that God wants you to be? 
sometimes what we need is a no to our prayer, but no's hurt. And we might start to question God's goodness. God, because you didn't give me what I want, are you actually there and good? Now, the false narrative is creeping in big time, and maybe you start to say, well, maybe he's not just a cosmic vending machine. Maybe there ain't nothing in the cosmos. And this is because we've ingested and involved ourselves in this narrative to the point where we've traded the relationship with God of asking, receiving, recognizing for the stuff that God gives. Know that God loves to give you stuff, but what he wants to give you more than anything is his very self. At the end of Luke chapter 11, after the ask and seek and knock, he says this, don't you know that I will give you everything. You, you ask for uh, an egg, a need. You ask for a loaf of bread, a need. I ain't going to give you a scorpion. I ain't going to give you a snake. I'm so much better than your earthly father. I'm a cosmic father who will not just give you what you need. I'll give you my very self. Look at verse 13. Jesus says in our true narrative of the God who knows and gives us what we need, who cares more about who we're becoming rather than what we need, he sa- rather than, excuse me, just what we want from him, this God says, I'll give you my very self. He says, the Father in heaven will give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. God will give you what you need when you need it. And so all of a sudden, if you work backwards from verse 13 and move up back into the ask and seek and knock, look down at your Bibles in Luke chapter 11. Let's work backwards now. When he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What he says, go back one more verse just before it. He says, give you as much as you what need the false narrative says fill in the blank ask for anything God will give it period seek for anything God will give it period no 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 God is interested in a relationship not just a transaction he's interested in your formation not just a transaction now I want to explore how Jesus models in our third question and confirms the narrative of the God who knows and gives and cares more about our formation than our transactions. I want to move into the third question and we're going to jump back up and work our way back down Luke chapter 11. Are you still with me? Make sure you're open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We're going to go back to verse 1. But after we start our third question, and that is this. How does Jesus reveal this narrative to be true? Where God may not always give us what we want, but he does give us what we need. It says this. Jesus teaches us that asking God is about growing your relationship with God by building trust, reliance, and boldness within you. Earlier, we just ran through that bit about, hey, if you ask your earthly father for a bread, is he going to surprise you with a scorpion unless he's an intense practical joker like we see on YouTube sometimes? He says God's not like that because he wants to build in you trust. You see that? He wants to build in you this sense that he is the father who's not a cosmic vending machine, but he is a cosmic dad who wants you to run up to his lap and delights in you given the laundry list. But then just like me and earthly dad, 
he knows that what's best is not to give you everything on it. Like when my five-year-old asks for all the cats in the world. <laughs> we said no for at least three reasons. Emma, number one, you're allergic, it would kill you. Case closed. But because we're toots, we're not as good as the Heavenly Father, we kept going. We said no. Number two is that Dad is irrationally terrified and distrusting of cats, so I don't want a herd of cats in my house because Daddy had a terrible cat when he was growing up that ruined him on cats for his whole life, so no! And then the third reason we said no is because we love you and we know what you need. So that's that sense of reliance. Jesus models what it means to rely on him, to know and to give us what we need as we become more and more like Jesus. And then we're going to see this story as we round out our time in a moment. That strange story about the sleepy guy and the sleeping kids, the point there is that God wants you to be bold in asking. Because how bold was it for Emma to ask for all the cats? Because somewhere deep in Emma's mind, she thought, my dad can give me all the cats. I think there's something there when we pray for those who are sick, when we pray for those who are lost and at the end of a dark, dark, dark road, I think we need to pray for all the cats. But it's not about transaction, it's about formation. It's not just about what you get, but it's about who you become and who we are becoming like is Jesus. So look back with me at Luke 11, chapter one. One day Jesus was praying at a certain place and he finishes and his disciples run up to him and say, hey Lord, teach us how to pray and you need to know this, Jesus modeled a life of reliance. Do you know how many times in the Gospel of Luke he notes that Jesus would often withdraw and get away from the crowds and he would spend time with his Father? Jesus modeled a life of reliance. So when he went out in the power of the Holy Spirit and he was doing bold, all-cat kind of things, you with me? Nobody stopped and said, what kind of magic? Some did. But those who knew what's going on, you see them say, look what God is doing. Read the Gospels, see Jesus heal someone, see everybody else says, God is doing something awesome. They see Jesus, but know the power comes from God. And how does the power get to Jesus? In the presence of the Holy Spirit, when he tunes out of the crowds, and he tunes into the power that gives him the strength to go and be who he's called to be. So the disciples are following Jesus, and a disciple is someone who is with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. So they say, naturally, I want some of that. Teach us how to pray. And here's where I want to pause and say, hey, earlier when Jesus was saying about don't use your many words and your babbling and this, I want to pause and say some of you might have been thinking like our Catholic brothers and sisters who pray the rosary. When I was talking about magic words and our prayers of pray the magic prayer, are you with me? Some of you might have thought, is anybody thinking this? I thought of this when I was looking at Luke. I wondered how much of this babbling and magic incarnations do we see when we read prayers like we do in church that are already written out? 
And I want to warn you that, that Jesus is not saying, okay, so just go and freestyle and don't use any of these things. No, no, he's saying these, these, some of this is good, like a car, and it's nice and it's tried and true, but it ain't going to get anywhere unless you put your heart into it. But what Jesus gives us is a form that if we're under the false narrative could be the magic prayer that says, if I would just pray these magic words that Jesus said, then God will give me what I want. He says, no, 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 I'm still going to give you the words, but you got to put your heart into it. So he says this, when you pray, say. You hear me? He didn't say, when you pray, say something like this. I've been doing this a long time, but you just fill in your blanks and just kind of do you. He says, when you pray, say this. And Jesus gives us a prayer that's two things. It's rooted and born out of his mission. And then it's the second thing. It helps us in our mission. Here's how I want you to read this prayer because I could spend like a million years on this and people have written books on just these few lines and it's even longer in Matthew, so watch out. But here's a prayer born out of Jesus' mission. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Here's a prayer born out of Jesus' mission that rails against the stuff of God and helps sweep you up into the great mission of God. And when you see it through that lens, you begin to see that first line, Father, hallowed be your name. Jesus reveals who God is. He is Father. And he goes and tells stories about how the Father wants you to pray boldly and how a Father's gonna give you what you need. He reveals who God is. And then he says, your kingdom come. Jesus brings God's kingdom. Every time we say God's kingdom come, that means whatever other kingdom needs to step out the way. This is what Jesus' whole ministry was about, declaring and demonstrating God's reign had come. Give us what we need each day. Jesus sustains us on the journey. Jesus gives daily bread. Nobody said yearly bread. Jesus said say daily bread because if you got yearly bread, you might stop asking. And when you stop asking, you lose the formation. It makes it a transaction and you don't learn this rhythm of trust and reliance of God. You with me? Fourth, he says, forgive us our sins. Jesus forgives us. That's his mission. Fifth, he says, and then forgive everyone who sins against us. Jesus then empowers us to extend that same grace to others. So much bigger than stuff. You with me? Finally, and lead us not into temptation. Jesus confronts evil powers. This is born out of Jesus' mission. And then the second thing, it sustains us on our mission. So read this through this lens next when you see it from the minds and hearts of us who are trying to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus. This is the next slide. This is what we pray as disciples. We look to God, Father. Secondly, we surrender to his way. Your kingdom come. Third, we ask for what we need and we ask for wisdom. This is also in James. To give us the knowledge and wisdom to know what's the difference between what we want and what we need. You hear me? God, give us our daily bread and help us not ask for yearly bread or whatever it is that may not help form me into who you want me to be. Then, we confess in humility and then when we realize we're forgiven, we extend that grace to others. And then finally, 
Lead us not into temptation or trial. We resist evil as we go. It's an outlooking, forward-looking prayer. And it's a prayer that is so big and so much grander than all the other competing narratives. And so he tells this strange story And the point is not God is like a sleeping father who gets annoyed when you wake him in the middle of the night. The point is found when he says, because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you, there's that word again, what? Need. That word there, shameless audacity, is basically a persistent boldness. God I want all the cats. But notice I said want. That's when you put it through the lens of what is he going to give us that I need. But the key, and this is what N.T. Wright says about that verse, about that persistent boldness. N.T. Wright says this. What counts is persistence. There are all sorts of ways in which God isn't like a sleepy friend, but Jesus is focusing on one point of comparison only. He's encouraging a kind of holy boldness, a sharp knocking at the door, an insistent asking, a search that refuses to give up, right? There's the ask and seek and knock. That's what our prayer should be like, but watch the temptation. Because even our persistence can become a religious quarter and pressing A11. So it's not just that we need to do this for that. What he's advocating for is a holy boldness built out of relationship, of reliance and trust that God knows what we need before we even ask, but we need to be persistent in asking. The mantra in this church is we pray believing God can, that's the bold part, and we pray Asking that he will. You with me? We pray believing God can and we ask that he will and then we trust and ask for the wisdom to see him as good and loving no matter what. I want to close by telling you that I struggled big time today. Man, I had a terrible afternoon. I had a great time seeing folks at the clothes closet and then I went home and I want to tell you that your pastor was flooded with all of these false narratives. I don't know where it came from. It hit me out of left field and I just had a heck of a time today. It started because nothing in this sermon was right. Isaac Vaughn can attest we had like 20 slides and I went like half of them in a totally different order. Because I just, I just, I woke up and it just didn't make sense this morning. It started there and then I began to just unravel. And I began to see, you know, just, 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 man, I'm a pastor and I'm just anxious, I'm angry. And then I start to get mad at myself because it's not working and I'm like banging around and, and just, and just doing this stuff. And Amy's like, we're going to go to Taco Bell and give you some more time after the clothes closet. And then, like I said, I'm going to go on a walk, and I slam the door, and I'm running around, and here's what I start doing. God, just make it work. Make it work. Make it work. Make it work. And I realized that in my notes, I had scribbled out, what does a relationship of trust and reliance look like? And I had been going a mile a minute, cursing and screaming and hollering, I confess to you. 
It started because of this holy and good thing, a dumb sermon. But it began to work its way out and it questioned like who I am and am I, is this how a pastor acts and, and, and man, I'm, I'm not good at this and I can't do it. And finally, I've just felt like I just got to sit down and shut up because I felt like a teenager who just ran up to his dad and all I did was ask for money in a car. And I realized that's how I've been acting all week. The only time I sit down is really when I'm just saying, God, do this, please, and then I move on. And I confess to you that I had to sit down and I said, you know what? I'm sorry that I just want your stuff. I'm sorry I just want you to put it together. I'm sorry that I just want you to baptize and bless everything that I want to do with this church. And I listened to this song and I began to imagine my life, and I just thought of me as that teenager that had spent so much of my Christian life in the gimme, 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 gimme prayer. And this song says, there wasn't a day that you weren't by my side. There wasn't a day that you let me fall. So with all of my life and with all that I am, I will worship you. And I just go back and I imagine, here I am buzzing past the Father and I'd only stop for some money and the keys to the car. And it's as if he was telling me in that moment, look how you've been operating this week and you're going to go and tell these people to show me what it looks like to a relationship of reliance and trust. And I just had to sit and I imagine that each time I buzzed past God, he was there right beside me waiting for me to just turn and actually sit and talk to Dad. And I'm telling you, I barely sat, I didn't get it right, and maybe this sermon was a total disaster after all, but I'm here to tell you this is super real talk. He started to form something in me again this afternoon where he reminds me how important it is that we don't just buzz past him. We can curl up into his lap. We can trust him. We can rely on him. We can ask boldly for things, but let's not confuse the things for a relationship with him. And know that your father is good and he delights in giving you what you need, even a preacher who messes it up. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we are so grateful that you give us what we need when we need it and you give us your very self, in your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would just surround us in this moment, that we would not buzz past you. Because as present as we are, you are infinitely more present to us. You have been longing and waiting to meet with us, to be gracious to us. So would you meet with us as we sing the words, God, I look to you. Would we actually look to you and be present to your presence in this place? Would you give us boldness to ask for all that we need? And then would we surrender to you and trust your timing, your will, and your way for our good? We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus who loved us and showed us how to pray and live. Amen.
honor for the valleys of life. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths to see thee in the heights. Hymned in the mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox, by the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that, I ha that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. The Apostle John testified that this is the, vict the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Go in peace.